Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. In this episode, Dr. Stephen Wexner talks with three key leaders from the ACS Cancer Programs, which held their first ever joint conference in early March in Atlanta for members of the cancer care team. The leaders, Drs. Lori Kirstein, Timothy Mullett, and Catherine Yao, provide insights and highlights from the conference, including release of new breast cancer standards, exciting results of national quality improvement projects, and how to make good use of the National Cancer Database. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Welcome everybody to the House of Surgery podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the American College of Surgeons Cancer Conference, which was recently held in Atlanta from March 1st to 4th, encompassing all of our cancer programs. And with us today, uh, I have three guests we're going to be discussing that program, Dr. Tim Mullett, who's the chair of the Commission on Cancer, uh, Dr. Kathy Yao from North Shore Health Systems in Evanston, Illinois, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Lori Kirstein from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Welcome. Let's start out with you, Dr. Mullett, if we might. Could you give us an overview of, of how the conference was, was structured, uh, why these particular themes were chosen that were discussed between March first and fourth. Yeah, Steve, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to have a chance to kind of review this, uh, this conference. I, I think the primary reason for the conference is that, you know, we've all been going through uh, uh, changes in the pandemic. We've been sequestered in our virtual worlds for a while, and uh, it was a real opportunity for us to bring the teams back together again across the cancer programs, there's been a lot of progress that's happened, but in some ways it's happened kind of in the, uh, uh, in, in the shadow of not being in person. And so the opportunity to really get us all back together again uh, for all the cancer programs uh, and to really let our programs know that uh, we've been making progress and that we've, uh, we've got a lot that we need to, uh, to work on together. And so this was a chance to talk about some of the new directions that we're going in all of our programs. And uh, it was really an opportunity for us to demonstrate the, uh, the collaborative nature of how all of our cancer programs, the Commission on Cancer, uh, the Breast Accreditation Program, Rectal Accreditation Program, supported by the National Cancer Database, the Cancer Surgical Standards Program, Cancer Research Program, uh, all of them allowing us to, uh, to really uh, lean in and uh, and take cancer to the to the next level. And so uh, we were fortunate to be able to have our educational program education committees from each of our groups work together. Uh, and we were really under the leadership of uh, Dr. Lori Kirstein, who uh, helped to uh, kind of corral everything together and put together a uh, an agenda. And then the staff from the cancer programs were outstanding and being able to make this work. So. Uh, uh, Laurie, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you defined the uh, the structure of your program here? 
Sure. Thanks, Tim. And uh, also an honor to be here. Thanks so much, everybody. Um, so, you know, intentionally we wanted to approach our cancer uh, programs to let them know that, you know, the most important thing that we do as the cancer programs is we can um, address everything that sets the quality for cancer care from uh, staging to treatment and survivorship, et cetera, and quality improvement. And so we came up with a theme of um, where cancer care comes together. And overarching uh, theme of this conference was how multidisciplinary teams take care of cancer patients and how it's important to take the perspective of different cancer patients within uh, the context of what we do. And so we started off the first day with the rollout of the new uh, NAPBC or breast accreditation programs, new um, standards from the patient-centered point of view, and then sort of carried through for the second, third, and fourth days with um, uh, focus on the other cancer programs. We did a large um, uh, quality of life initiative, not quality, but quality improvement initiative um, with all of our national quality improvement projects, but also uh, hopefully teaching some of our programs how to initiate quality improvement programs and, and look to their own programs to search their NCDB data for, for gaps um, and to introduce the new quality measures so that um, to understand the difference between what's a standard and what's a measure. We um, uh, updated everybody on what was new and, and exciting about AJCC and the new disease sites for staging. Um, we did a lot of deep dives into the synoptic operative reports and the, the difficulties with those, as well as some opportunities for improvement and why they're important. Um, NAPRC had a large uh, stage on the second day talking about accreditation and new, new types of accreditation and, and important um, uh, aspects of NAPRC accreditation. We heard from um, Dr. Kamal from the American Cancer Society, who's one of our community partners, to also emphasize the theme of taking care of patients together in teams. And finally, we concluded the last day with some really um, uh, basic uh, walkthrough of how to prepare for a site visit and, and um, where the pitfalls occur and, and how to uh, uh, make your program look the best that it can when the site reviewers are coming. And then Dr. Mullet and um, Dr. Yang uh, wrapped up with uh, – you know, sort of where we're going with both quality improvement as well as the COC. And, you know, and again, the theme throughout the whole entire project was how important it is that we, we take care of our patients in teams and when we prepare for our site visits in teams, because as we know, cancer care is a multidisciplinary um, opportunity to make sure that we do the best that we can for our patients. And so um, that was sort of the overview and, and where we went with this. Okay, Th thanks for that really comprehensive overview. Uh, just before, before we move on to discuss some of the many themes that you mentioned, um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about who attended the conference because uh, you know we, it's not only uh, where cancer comes together, it's where cancer caregivers come to, came together. Um, and I know that uh, taking care of cancers is a team effort. So to tell us something about the types of attendees at the meeting. Sure. So what was nice about this program is it really addressed um, people from different programs, either that came together, um, registrars, cancer liaison physicians, nurse navigators, social workers, as well as surgeons and medical oncologists. Um, you know, the, the focus, as I, I mentioned, was really being able to address all these different types of practitioners who touch the patient across, uh, you know, the, uh, the journey that the patient takes. And so what we noticed was that there was a large number of people who came together either with people from their programs, they came together as teams, or, you know, sometimes our, our, our uh, meetings tend to focus on surgeons, but this also had a lot for registrars and for data abstractors and, and other people who um, help with accreditation. You know, Lori, that's an interesting point that um, the, there were a lot of registrars there. And in the past, we've had, uh, we've had sessions on 
accreditation 101 or survey savvy ways to be able to get programs ready. And so I, I really think this was kind of a, 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 a way to revisit those elements and to bring those people forward so that they can see, uh, again, the value of connecting with the new standards that were changing in all the cancer programs. One of the real voices that we heard that was powerful was uh, on uh, the first day was uh, sessions with uh, with a patient and a description of their journey and going through the point of diagnosis and the frustrations, but also the assistance that was provided, where they needed help and um, and where they where they found that. And so I, I think that's really a, a strong feature of the new uh, NAPBC breast cancer accreditation standards. Uh, and uh, and I, I think it was a great way to really highlight the the role of the patient in all of this and uh, to see that that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're working for. Yeah, I mean, we work for the patient, the patients at, at the center, obviously of our multidisciplinary team. And maybe uh, that's a good point to ask a little bit about the new NAPBC standards and, and the prompt um, initiative. Yes, so uh, my name's Kathy, I'm chair of NAPBC and we had a whole day dedicated to our new standards, which are officially rolling out in 2024. And we started the day with uh, what Tim Mullet just described, an interview with a patient, because our standards are really focused on the patient journey. And <clears throat> it was fascinating to hear this patient's journey, her point of view, the frustrations, and, and the positives that she encountered in her journey. And what we've done is we've taken chapter five of the standards and dedicated that to the patient journey. So we spent a good portion of the day talking about our patient journey standards. And we educated centers on the new standards. Uh, we had a lot of opportunity for questions. And I think the centers really learned a lot from us about our patient-centered standards. And I think we learned a lot from them because we got lots of really great questions and ideas about how to focus on the patient journey, programs that centers are doing, and how to modify some of our standards to, to help our, our centers. Uh, we also talked about the prompt study which is a quality collaborative amongst napbc sites prompt stands for patient reported observations on medical procedure timeliness and this is a two-year quality study we've asked sites to provide us all of their timeliness data from time of screening mammogram to diagnosis to first treatments and we have provided data back to centers and now centers are conducting their own individual QI projects centered around their timeliness metrics. So uh, we have we presented some of the preliminary data to the centers and we are working with centers now and helping them build their QI projects. So I think it was uh, a very fruitful, productive day. And I cannot tell you how many people came up to me afterwards <clears throat> and said, you know, it was just so nice to see you in person, see the leadership of NAPBC in person, have the ability to come up and ask you questions and hear you talk about the standards. <clears throat> I, it, was, it was really um, quite remarkable and it was really nice to hear that. 
Yeah, it, it sounds like a, a lot got done, a lot of important things. And of course, the networking and meeting in person can't be uh, understated after three years of just having these video uh, types of meetings. It, it's tremendous getting people back together. Can you give us a glimpse into some of the findings? Kathy, just a little bit of a preview. Yeah, so we collected a lot of demographic factors, and I would say the majority of our centers have, uh, they're treating anywhere from 200 to 400 breast cancer patients a year, and uh, each of them have several breast imagers, surgeons, and plastic surgeons. Uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting is we conducted 28 qualitative one-hour interviews with patients across the country from different breast centers. And we asked them about what would be their ideal time interval from a screening mammogram to diagnosis to first treatment. And we compared that to what the centers had provided us with their hard data. And for the most part, uh, the interval that the patients requested was pretty much online with what the centers were performing, except for the time from biopsy to first treatment, namely surgery, was much longer from what the sites were reporting versus what the patients preferred. Patients preferred a 21-day interval, and sites were reporting that they're closer to 40 to 42-day intervals. So I, I think that presents a very good opportunity for lots of sites to improve upon. And then that's the whole point of the prompt quality collaborative is to look at gaps in care and look at where you can improve your timeliness. And, and you mentioned the word quality. Obviously, quality is one of the major uh, focus points of all of the college quality programs. Uh, across the board, whether it's cancer or trauma or bariatrics or, or, or otherwise. Um, and a lot of quality improvement has been discussed, obviously. Maybe you can talk, um, either Tim or anybody else, just a little bit about some of the quality improvement uh, programs besides the one we just heard about that are going on. Sure. You know, I think what we've found was, uh, in during the pandemic, uh, programs were not able to gather with uh, having events and having pro patients together. And, and so some of our standards were challenged with being able to, to continue the monitoring of the quality of the programs that was going on. And so uh, we began to look for other ways and, and we saw that there was a national challenge of uh, getting patients into screening and uh, getting them back to screening from uh, when they were sequestered. And so once we recognized that, some early data was coming out that there was going to be a much higher mortality associated with that. So we started a return to screening initiative, and that became a quality improvement project that was uh, offered to the country. And we had uh, nearly 800 programs that participated in that uh, across 2021. And we saw the success of that, and we wanted to build on other consistent problems that occur within programs. And so we offered a project called Just Ask. Uh, assessment of tobacco use in cancer patients. And uh, we had almost 800 programs that, uh, that enrolled in that. And that turned into another quality improvement project that we ran at a national level. And uh, with that, we saw improvements in all the metrics of uh, programs that were uh, assessing the use of tobacco, but also assisting patients into getting into tobacco treatment. And uh, so I think these are, are 
proven ways now for us to be able to address these common problems that occur across so many programs. And so with that, we've gone on to another quality improvement initiative called Beyond Ask, looking at assisting patients into getting into tobacco treatment. And uh, that's led to uh, another project that uh, Dr. Kirstein can talk about with uh, uh, addressing barriers to care. But the important piece of all of this is that you know, when we evaluated, even prior to the pandemic, the effectiveness of our programs being able to address quality improvement, we found that there was a knowledge gap and we needed to address that. And so we felt that these national quality improvement projects are ways that we can enhance uh, the, the, the structural use of methodology and improving the uh, effectiveness of quality improvement projects and evaluating their programs. And we think that this is going to lead to ways to evaluate their own efforts in uh, understanding diversity and disparities that occur in their program, as well as being able to uh, make real substantial changes and uh, challenges that occur uh, in taking care of cancer patients. So I, th I think we're learning a lot and I think our programs are helping us. And uh, I think that we're gonna be able to move forward uh, in a number of different ways. Laura, you wanna talk a little bit about your uh, uh, breaking barriers? Sure. So you know, one of the successes um, that we noticed with using the Just Ask program and the Return to Screen program is just to be able to harness the power of the infrastructure of our accreditation programs. Because there's so many programs, we're able to make a difference um, with these national QI projects. And so um, Barriers to Care uh, launched actually last week. The application will be due uh, in another week or so if people are still interested. It, you know, We noticed that, that even though we have a Barriers to Care standard for both COC and NAPBC, that we know that barriers to cancer care still exist across our country. And one of the um, ways we wanted to measure that is just figure out why patients aren't showing up to active treatment appointments. You know, generally, if people don't show up for active treatment, it's not because they don't want to. It's either a psychosocial reason or transportation or financial toxicity. And so the Barriers to Care project is going to focus on people who don't show up for at least three radiation treatment appointments during their prescription. And the reason we chose this is a couple. One is there's some clinical correlation with missing uh, radiation appointments and increase in local regional recurrence rates. Um, radiation in general, the data is easy to collect because there's only a couple of software programs that they use and everybody knows how many uh, treatments they're supposed to have and if they miss them. And so it's easy for our programs to collect this data. And so the, it's also a, a two-year project similar to PROMPT. Um, uh, programs can participate in a year one or year two, or both, and they will get credit for two different standards for both COC and NAPBC in each of the years they participate. And so what we're hoping to do uh, within the first year is help programs to figure out why their patients aren't showing up and do they have a, a method for tracking the patients and why they don't show up. And then during the second year, we're going to offer some um, implement some um, toolkits so that they can implement changes to see if we can decrease these barriers, whether, again, it's like a social reasons, et cetera. And we've partnered with um, GW, who has a community map to learn to help our programs learn about resources within their community to address some of these barriers. Um, and in the second year, we'll be partnering with some, some other uh, some real strong 
programs that have some toolkits to help with these changes. And so we're, we're really hoping that this um, project will teach programs to figure out where the barriers are for their patient population so that they can expand them going forward, right? So if, if you know why your patients aren't showing up for radiation, you can also figure out why they're not showing up for other, um, other treatments or other appointments at the institution and sort of scale up in that way. So we're excited. That's very exciting. And just listening to it, the ultimate point you're going to be looking at is survivor, right? Survivorship. And, and maybe we can branch out and tell us a little bit about what was covered at the, at the meeting in terms, particularly the new uh, CRP and, and, and focus on survivorship, uh, sort of the, the ultimate uh, quality metric, if you will. So um, Dr. Bowie, who is the interim chair of the uh, new cancer research program, talked about how they're going to be tackling survivorship and do some risk modeling for outcomes. Um, uh, the survivorship has obviously been a difficult standard over time, and, and I think programs have had some challenges meeting that, and there have been some different iterations and improvements into the standard itself. Um, I think that the, um, they're going to be passing out a survey to a number of our programs to collect information and then use the feedback from that survey, again, to try to implement a new survivorship, I don't want to say standard, but a new survivorship um, program so that you know, we can have something a little bit more formal. I don't know, Tim, did you want to say something about that? Sure. The, uh, uh, the survivorship standard was initially developed with the survivorship care plans that our programs were putting together. And we found that while they were uh, adhering to that, we weren't certain that that was truly making the difference to your point, Steve. Our, this is so important for us to be able to monitor these patients as they go through care uh, and then on the other side of care. And uh, so we really wanted to make certain that we were engaging these patients and, and getting them back into life, getting them into other areas beyond treatment and recognizing some of the challenges that occur uh, after treatment, some of the toxicities from our therapy, from surgery, from uh, the trauma of cancer and so forth. And so uh, we switched the standard to be able to get a broader look at survivorship and what we began to notice was that uh, while we were learning what programs were, were reporting on in their site reviews from last year, we really weren't able to capture what the overall spectrum of their program was uh, so that we could really look and see what are the most impactful services that are offered to patients in survivorship. And so uh, Dr. David Freyer from University of Southern California uh, has helped us based on his experience in the pediatric population to develop this survey uh, that is uh, going to be looking at the adult population and what services are being offered in survivorship and then correlate that with the patient experience and then be able to really hone in on the survivorship standards so that we can say these are the most impactful services that you can offer and as with many of our standards, if we can show data, and that's what our cancer research program is really looking for, if we can show data on the effectiveness of our standards, then that's gonna be meaningful to program administration, for hospital leaders to be able to say, I wanna put resources into these efforts so that we can continue to see better outcomes from our own patients. And so that's really what we're trying to learn. And the cancer research program is using survivorship as kind of their first pass at validating and studying our standards. Uh, we have had dramatic interest from 
a lot of folks to be able to learn how we can evaluate the impact of these standards from the National Cancer Institute, from, from other and other funders to be able to evaluate this and be able to see how we can uh, really study the impact of what's happening in our cancer programs and our accreditation. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned standards a couple of times, uh, Tim, and I know another focus during the meeting were also op was also operative standards, right? I mean, because there's, there's, there's standards and then there's operative standards. I, I don't know if Kathy, you, you might want to tackle that one and, and talk a little bit about some of the advantages uh, uh, of operative standards uh, at, at, that were discussed at the meeting, as well as some of the potential challenges and obstacles to standards. Yes, so as many of you know, the college has rolled out uh, standards for cancer surgery. And uh, in the breast world, we have rolled out standards for uh, basically axillary surgery. And this is looking at synoptic reporting in our operative reports. At my institution, I'll tell you what our individual experience has been here. At our institution, we're very well resourced. We have a very highly functional EPIC team and they have built in the elements into our operative reports. Uh, so that is ongoing right now. There's been some modifications. So it's it's been pretty seamless, but I think that's probably not the case at a lot of programs. And this does take resources with your EHR, with your HIT folks, and with your whole team. And I think uh, probably the first challenge is it's always a cultural challenge getting people on board with the concept of synoptic reporting and seeing what the benefits will be for the team and for the patient and for the care that you're delivering. And I think that was discussed uh, extensively at the meeting. And this is an ongoing challenge, uh, getting everybody on the same page, but, but there are a lot of people that are working on this and they are very dedicated towards it. And I feel like it's shifting and we're moving more in a positive direction. So I think over time this will happen, but it will have a little bit of a rocky road. And I think whenever you involve uh, a change in the EHR and HIT, that's always a big challenge. Uh, at our institution, finding HIT folks to make some of these changes has been very challenging. There's just, they're just not out there. You're competing with big tech for these folks. And that uh, has been a big uh, problem for us and I'm sure for many medical centers. So we just keep pushing forward because this is important and I think it will improve quality of care for patients. Yeah, and I don't think healthcare institutions couldn't pay the kind of salaries that other yeah. uh, other types of industry can pay for some of these bright folks uh, who are well trained in tech, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and the like. Um, Laura. So I just wanted to add, you know, one of the panels that we had at the conference this weekend, um, we had a registrar, a pathologist, and a surgeon uh, on the panel talking about the different parts of doing this, you know, making sure that you're compliant with the synoptic operative report. And I think I can't stress that enough, that you have to, when you're looking at um, implementing these actual standards, these operative standards, that it's really important to make sure that uh, you have these key members of the team involved, because you don't know where the issue really lies until you take a deep dive, you know, is it the surgeon who hasn't actually collected the number of lymph nodes? Is it the pathologist who hasn't looked at the tissue enough? Is it the registrar who's not abstracting the data? So I think that, um, you know, it's really important that when you're trying to um, 
implement these um, synoptic operative reports and these standards that everybody's at the table uh, when you start to do the, the um, analysis of you know, meeting them. And, and as you mentioned, obviously, IT, to be able to document it within the chart itself. So, but, but it was really interesting to hear the registrar's perspective. I have to admit that I had not thought about it as much since I'm a surgeon, and, um, and they're such a key part of what we do with these reports. You know, as you have these reports, we have these reports and we generate more and more data. Uh, the NCDB is already the world's most robust repository of, of cancer data. Um, and I don't think you can read an article or go to a meeting where AI isn't brought up. And I'm just wondering if, if that was a theme at any point in the conference to talk about what how, how AI might shape our future in terms of risk prediction, in terms of uh, outcome prediction, in terms of counseling patients. Maybe you could give us a glimpse into it. Anybody want to take that one? Right. So um, again, the, the cancer research program had a really nice presentation from one of our clinical scholars who is a general surgery resident doing a couple of years at the college. And they're looking at uh, a five-year risk prediction model for survivorship um, uh, for outcomes, you know, survival outcomes. You know, we usually use staging, right? DNM staging, you have a size of a tumor and you have a lymph node status, but this actually takes into account much more of the tumor biology. So I'm a breast surgeon, I'll give you the example. It'll take into account the estrogen and progesterone receptor status of the, of the tumor as well as the HER2 status to give you a much more specific survival prediction over five years, which is much more sophisticated than what we currently have for staging. And so they're going to be using, um, I don't know if it's artificial intelligence, but they're certainly going to be using modeling in a much more sophisticated way than we've been able to do that before. Um, and, um, you know, there was also talk in, in the future about what kind of data we can collect in the NCDB. You know, we don't want to overburden our abstractors, but at the same time, if we can collect information about um, synoptic operative reporting in the sense that are you doing the correct procedure, you know, and the elements of a procedure to say that you're doing a cancer surgery correctly, if we can collect that information and tie that to some outcomes, um, survival outcomes with this risk predictor, that would be a, a direction in which we might be able to head in the future. Um, and so those are sort of the two areas, I think, that we, uh, that were discussed over at the conference. But this risk modeling is absolutely fascinating how they're doing it. And I think the more information we get in, the better it will be over time. It'll sort of improve itself over time. Yeah, Great. You know, yeah. those things that we've uh, we've seen has been trying to broaden the data that can be captured and using some of the uh, ability to link databases uh, is a way that we can take some of the burden off of the cancer registrar and be able to automate some of those uh, data collections. So hopefully that's going to allow us to have a little more flexibility, maybe even a little more time from the tumor registrars to abstract some of these additional fields that are that are so impactful, things that might be helpful in addressing disparities or being able to uh, understand some of those barriers that exist that can't really be captured in the, uh, in the traditional fields. But being able to link some of these data sets is something that uh, uh, is being worked on uh, to, to be able to uh, provide a, a a better look at what our cancer patients are going through. Uh, that, that, that's tremendous. Now, one one area, because we're, we're getting near the end of our uh, podcast, but one of the other areas that was mentioned earlier was about the AJCC and, and some new disease sites and interactive tools. And I'm wondering who might want to tackle that one and give us a little idea of what was discussed in Atlanta. 
So, um, yeah, no, it's okay. So, you know, the um, AJCC sort of acknowledges that sometimes it's difficult for clinicians to stage the patients uh, in clinic and that um, most of us, you know, will Google online what the most you know recent version of whatever our disease site is to be able to do that. And certainly with breast, it's become a little bit more complex when you're talking about integrating genomic profiling and all these different things. And so they sort of acknowledge that and they've come up with some interactive tools um, that can help clinicians stage patients a little bit more easily and then it's down downloadable onto an app. I, I mean, it's hard to go into detail because it's a little bit technical, but just to say that if you're interested in um, doing a staging a little bit more easily while you're in clinic, you can go to the AJCC website and you can download this interactive tool onto your phone. Um, and that will make it much easier for people or for clinicians um, in general to be able to stage their patients. Because as we know, staging impacts treatment, which impacts survival. And so we want to make sure that we're staging our patients appropriately from, uh, from the outset. Oh, that's great. And I like the idea of having it in a handy format that you can just get. I, I personally like using the NISQIP risk calculator the patient can see. So this sounds somewhat akin. Mm -hmm. Tim? Actually, I, can I, I just wanted to say sure. a few words. This is Kathy again from NAPBC that I think actually, to me, what I gained from the conference and what I thought was the most important parts were kind of the boring parts. But uh, a lot of discussion about how to conduct quality improvement projects. And I think you're gonna see a shift with the college in this focus on these collaboratives that we sort of consider national, we call them national or sort of program-wide collaboratives such as Prompt, Breaking Barriers, Beyond Ask, and really helping centers walk through the framework for conducting quality uh, studies, because we really haven't done a lot of that in the past, and we've done some studies looking at what QI studies look like at centers right now and finding that they're really not following the framework that they should be doing to really conduct quality improvement. So there was a lot of talks at the conference about that. How do you conduct a quality improvement project? How do you identify your problem? How do you write your aim statement? How do you do a root cause analysis, come up with an intervention, and then implement the intervention and follow up? And so I, I think that, that was actually very beneficial. I learned a lot, and I know a lot of the, the audience learned a lot, and I think that will be a, a continued benefit of the college and being involved in these quality collaboratives is really learning the methodology and how to conduct these quality studies so you get the most out of it. So, you know, you, you give us uh, a glimpse into where we're going. And I think while we're on that track, let, let, let's continue. And uh, what are some of the future directions uh, based on the conference? And, and then after that, we'll just wrap up with a, a glimpse into next year's meeting. Well, that's great. I think the, uh, the, the conference really gave us some, uh, some uh, great examples of where we're going with our, uh, uh, with our data collection right now. Uh, but also, as Kathy was alluding to, uh, I think that we're going to find more power in these uh, national quality improvement projects. I think our programs have shown that they like these and that they've found them to be helpful for us to, uh, to actually make changes in their programs. Um, but I think our standards are also going to be evolving to uh, incorporate more information about diversity, more uh, addressing more disparities that exist within our programs and trying to deliver more on equity in terms of cancer care uh, in rurality and racial and ethnic disparities in uh, addressing social determinants of health and uh, 
and, and really responded to cancer care in a way that we need to. Uh, and I, I think that that's uh, a lot of what came out of this. I think our quality improvement focus, not just on quality improvement initiatives, but also on uh, really doing some better education. We're going to continue with some of this in our next conference coming up in uh, Minneapolis in July. Uh, and uh, so there'll be ongoing information about at the uh, American College of Surgeons Quality and Safety Conference. And uh, so there'll be more information about uh, these types of projects and these types of tools going forward. Uh, and so I think we're beginning to see more of a uh, of a digital footprint in the uh, in the college and in the way that we're handling our standards with these uh, uh, risk calculators, with the app that you heard from AJCC, uh, and I think that we're going to begin to see some of these come uh, in our data collection uh, in our quality improvement projects as well. Um, one of the things that I think has been really powerful is that we've been seeing a lot more interaction between the different programs. And I think that has given us a lot of uh, uh, both breadth and depth in our, uh, in our work that we're doing to, so that it's not just something happening within the Commission on Cancer, but it's uh, supported by so many areas within the cancer programs. Uh, and interaction between uh, the work of the rectal accreditation program and the breast accreditation program. And, uh, and these lessons being learned in these projects are not staying in a silo, uh, but we're able to share them much easier. So I think that we're gonna, uh, as, as folks have recognized and they commented on during the conference, uh, that, the, that the Commission on Cancer and the other cancer programs are moving at a faster pace now, and we're much more nimble than we have been uh, uh, based on what were uh, printed manuals, and we could only make changes periodically. Uh, I think you're beginning to see that there's uh, a lot more rapid response to the needs of our program, and I think that's a we're we're at a time that uh, that. Uh, program administration needs to see that, and we need to be responsive to it. And I think we're we're recognizing that and making those changes. So it's quality and safety this year in Minneapolis in July. Next year, the cancer programs meeting will be in Austin, Texas, February 22 to 24. And for anybody who wants to hear what happened at this program, um, if you paid to go to this program, this one will be available online. We, we, we recorded the whole thing, um, and that will be available probably within the next few weeks. That was videotaped. Um, but if you didn't join the conference, we will have portions of it available or the whole thing available for purchase um, through the college website in the near future as well, because um, some some of the things, you know, uh, in addition to what um, Tim and Kathy talked about, one of the things that was really helpful during this conference that um, I took away, you know, they really walked people through the nitty gritty of, of, you know, how to prepare for a site review, where are the pitfalls, um, how do you get accreditation, you know, just very sort of um, prescriptive information. And so people who are um, either applying for reaccreditation or applying for accreditation the first time for any of our accreditation programs would benefit from going through this conference and hearing about all this information. And so um, where we were really excited, I mean, one of the things that I took away from this program was really the energy and the enthusiasm within the room and all of the ideas that were generated by talking again and by being in person and seeing all of our posters. And I think you really can't capture that uh, through a web-based, you know, meeting. And it was just so exciting to be able to do that again in person.
Well, if the energy and enthusiasm of the three of you today is any reflection of the meeting, it certainly was an outstanding event, and I'd encourage everybody to show up in July in Minneapolis and then next February in Austin to both of those meetings to catch some of this infectious enthusiasm. It's, it's wonderful to see, and you're right, it never happens in a Zoom platform. It happens in person. I'd like to thank everybody for their participation, for your participation today. Uh, in the House of Surgery podcast, and, and looking forward to uh, people being able to access material online, as you just mentioned, as, as well as to attend in person those next two conferences. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.